When Jephthah came home to Mizpah, there was his daughter hurrying out to meet him, dancing to the rhythm and tambourines. She was his only child. Except for her, he had no son or daughter. Now that's important to understand because she's the only continuation of his line. And you would say, yeah, but she's a daughter. But remember, if you go back to the book of Numbers, if a man dies and he has no sons with the Zelophod's daughters, then they are legitimately able to inherit and continue the line on as well. So she is a legitimate heir to continue the line as being the only daughter. She comes out, and the irony here is he has just pledged her as a human sacrifice, and she's coming out dancing in celebration. When he saw her, he ripped his clothes and said, Oh no, my daughter, you have completely ruined me. Yeah, because it's her fault. You have brought me disaster. I made an oath to Yahweh and I cannot break it. He said to her, she said to him, My father, since you have made an oath to Yahweh, do to me as you have promised. After all, Yahweh vindicated you before your enemies and the Ammonites. She then said to her father, Please grant me this one wish. For two months, allow me to walk through the hills with my friends and mourn my virginity. He said, you may go. He permitted her to leave for two months, and she went with her friends and mourned her virginity as she walked through the hills. And after two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her just as he vowed. She died as a virgin. Her tragic death gave rise to a custom in Israel. For every year, the Israelite women commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead for four days. He killed her and burned her because he believed that that's what God wanted. Some scholars say, oh, he didn't do that. One, because it doesn't really say that he killed her. Two, it says that she mourned her virginity. Why would she be mourning her virginity and never getting married and having kids if he's going to kill her? She'd be mourning her death. And three, there's no way that God would allow him to do that. That's a very popular argument made by scholars. Here's the problem with that. One, let's go backwards. Yes, God will allow him to do that for the same reason that God has allowed a lot of things to happen. Hitler, genocides. I mean, oh, I mean, we can go on and I mean, just turn on the news and open any history book and God has allowed a lot more evils than this. So that's not a valid argument. Two, it does say that he killed her. Because what did he vow? I will burn her, or it. And it says, the narrator says, he did to her just as he vowed. So he did kill her. And three, why did she mourn her virginity and never getting married and having kids? Yeah. For one reason, God's making the point that the lion's dead. And, the God, and lions are incredibly important to God. For the same reason, it says that this is his only kid, his only kid, his only kid. And now the line is being wiped out just like Gideon's line is being wiped out. And the other reason is this. When people are dying, most of the time when they're on their deathbed or they've been shot, or I don't care if it's like I'm about ready to die from a disease or I'm going to just kind of waste away in a natural death or I'm violently dying, most people don't really mourn the fact that they're going to die. What do they mourn? Their regrets, the things that they'll never get to do. And women, 
especially women, desire getting married and having kids more than anybody else. And I don't mean that as a blanket statement, especially in this culture, but especially in that culture. Even today, some of my most strong teenage girls in my school who are like active and all about like women's rights and that kind of stuff, when I listen to them talk in study hall, they're talking about getting married and having kids. That's just innate in us as a human being. And especially in the ancient world where your worth as a woman and a man is only found in your ability to produce your line and continue it going, that is what you dream of one day. And she will never get to do that. People don't mourn most of the time that they're going to die. Sometimes they might say, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. But it's usually immediately followed because I won't get to do this and I won't get to do this and I won't get to do that or I don't get to say goodbye to my family or they mourn the regrets of things that they never got to do or the things that they did wrong. That's what she's mourning. And he sacrificed her. So here's the thing. He knows the history of God and he's used in the name Yahweh, but he has no idea who this God is. For him, Yahweh is just another pagan God. And this is what I tell my students all the time. I don't care what they say and what jargon and lingo they use. Using the right words does not mean you have a relation with God. Well, vows you can vow. You can dedicate your... So if you go back to the numbers, you can actually dedicate your children, you can dedicate your farm to God and that kind of stuff. And Hannah is going to vow her son Samuel to God. The difference is that they're living sacrifices, which is the phrase that Romans use. You can make vows to God. And does God take your vows seriously? Yes. God takes breaking a vow very seriously and calls it a sin in the law when you break it. But here's the thing. If he sacrifices his daughter, is he sinning? If he breaks his vow, is he sinning? But which one do you, would you rather stand before God on? The breaking the vow. And which one do you think you would have a better job of God having compassion on you? Hey, God, I'm a stupid idiot. I'm so sorry. But ultimately, when I thought about this, I really want to do the loving God and loving my neighbor. And so this is for the sake of God and my neighbor. Then, you know what? I had to kill her. But here's the other thing, too. Numbers allowed you to get out of vows, but you had to do a stink load of sacrifices. But you could get out of it. But what God was saying is that he gets that we're stupid and we're rash. And so he allowed us to get out of vows if we wanted to. But he also required you to sacrifice a whole lot of animals, which is the equivalent of buying like a $35,000 car and smashing with a sledgehammer, which means what he's saying is, I'll let you get out of it because I know what you humans are like when you're always like, I promise I'll swear I'll follow you all my life if you just get me out of this. You don't really mean that. We say stuff like that all the time. So he knows a bit of the human nature. and doesn't want to condemn us constantly for our stupidity. He'll condemn you for your sin and your evil, but not your stupidity all the time. But he also says, but so that you don't do that mistake again, it's going to cost you. And here's the question. Is honoring God and keeping your daughter alive worth, worth the sacrifice? See, most parents will do anything to keep their kids alive financially chasing them down across the world like and taken and beating up all the bad guys to get them back, whatever. But he says, 
my vow, my word is more important than the life of my daughter. And that's the tragedy. I said I'll do this and I have to do it. And that's more important than any life. And yet Jesus is going to die on the cross for us. And he's like, no, I'm going to kill my daughter for my reputation, my word. A man is only as good as his word. And yes, that is true. But not when your word is in association with evil, ungodly things. Some people would ask, why in the world is she okay with this? That's the other problem they have. They think that maybe she was dedicating her life to a monastery. Because she would say, you need to do this, Dad. And you're like, okay, this can't really be about her killing, getting killed, because she would never say, oh, no, no, no. You don't understand the ancient world. Because remember, the question is not, is there gods? The question is just, what God are you serving? And here's the thing. If you don't sacrifice your child to the gods, the gods will jack up your life and your family's life and even your village life. There are cases in human history where somebody has refused to sacrifice their kid to the gods like everybody else has, and the village has come and taken the kid from them and sacrificed it by force because they're afraid of what the gods are going to do to the entire village. And we saw how even Yahweh, who is a godly, just God, punished all of Israel for the sin of Achan. How much will a jack-up, evil God who even allows child sacrifice, demands it to begin with, will punish an entire village for not doing that? And there are other things that God, you're like, well, she'll still be alive, right? So what, they can give you diseases and that kind of stuff. Isn't that worth having your kid? Yeah, but the gods aren't done with you because they also control your afterlife. And there is jacked up, horrible, evil things that they can do to her for all eternity. If you were her, would you much rather be guaranteed damnation into a horrible, miserable torture in the afterlife your entire life because you refuse to be sacrificed according to your dad's vow? Or would you rather be into your life early and at least have some kind of a good afterlife? Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. But a lot of Americans don't think that way. This whole story is just jacked up. And so we have a guy who knows the stories He seems to know the name of God, talks like he knows God, but the God that he has in mind is a completely different God. It's a completely different God. And you're seeing that each judge is getting worse. Because here's the thing. Not only Gideon was doing this to his people, but he did not do this to his family. Now Jephthah is willing to do this to his own family. He's willing to do this to his own family. And we're going downhill. We are doing child sacrifice in our culture too. And I'm not just talking about abortion, although that is a big messed up child sacrifice. And when you really look at child abortion, there's a lot of connections to paganism, the way it's done and other things too, but that's a whole other topic. But we are sacrificing our children's in the name of our own gods of success at a corporation, Sports, like in our school right now, and I think our coach, the new God that we're sacrificing our kids to is sports. Kathy Fisher mentioned she has this Bible study with a bunch of girls at her school, and one of the things that they asked to be prayed for was they're like, please pray for us, because in the next 100 days, we only have one day off from our sports. 
And a lot of these kids come home late at night, and I talk to a lot of these kids, and their their families are not together. They don't eat meals together. They don't do things. And I'm not saying you're a bad person if you're in sports, but sports needs to be seriously relooked at in our culture. How many hours you put in at work should be seriously relooked at at our culture. How many hours you spend entertaining yourself on Facebook or your phone should be seriously relooked at in our culture. Because I actually have kids, too, who say, well, like, oh, you're not involved in sports, so you're probably hanging out with your parents. They're like, no, because my mom and dad are always on the phone all the time, as in, like, playing games and that kind of stuff. We're sacrificing our kids to other gods. It may not be a jacked-up god that's requiring us to actually stick a knife in our kids' chest and burn them. But we are sacrificing them to our god of success, our god of wealth, our god of keeping up with the Joneses, our God having a future for a kid in sports, which, oh, by the way, the studies have shown that you actually spend more money having your kid in sports their entire career through middle school and high school than any scholarship they'll ever get. And that we're talking about all schools, public, big schools. We did a huge study with Jerome Dublin and small schools and stuff, and we added everything up and found that the real scholarships are in academics and in art and community services. That's where most of the money comes from. And yet I hear parents all the time, got to get a good scholarship, got to get a scholarship, got to have a future, got to teach teamwork, got to teach character. Well, if you look at most athletes in professional sports, they don't have character. That comes from the family. All this comes from the family. But if you're constantly in the car and, and people are like, well, my, I see my mom in this day because she's at this game, but my dad's at my brother's game, that... There's so many ways that we're second. And once again, I'm not saying that like phones are evil and sports are bad and, and work is bad. The point is, like Augustine said, disordered love. You've got to prioritize your loves. And the, first, and the question is, what order have you put your loves in? And God and family should be at the top because it's the only thing that God gave us. He didn't give us all this other stuff. He gave us family. And the question we need to look at in our own lives is, whatever you spend the most time on is the most important thing to you. And whatever you spend the most time on is going to be the thing that you're going to sacrifice other things for it. And the question is, where are you spending most of your time? Are you justifying it? When was the last time you talked to your family about how they felt about how many hours are being put in it? What are you spending the most time talking about your kids with? Or are you doing Deuteronomy 6.4? And then when your kids hear you talk, it's mostly about God and the things he's doing and how you're serving him and how you're expanding the garden. Or is it most of the time that you're talking to your kids, what they hear is football and money and success and got to get to work and got to do this. Sometimes we sacrifice our kids to home improvement. All, there's anything we can sacrifice. There's Netflix binging. There's so many things. And the question is, is not, well, I'm not like killing my kid or aborted my kid or to this God over here. Because we have the American gods. And the question is, where are you putting your time? Where are you putting your effort? And when you grow up, what are your kids going to say to you about what they believed your priorities were? Because kids are a lot more observant and a lot more evaluative than what we really give them credit for. Is Yahweh truly Yahweh to you? Is he truly a relational God to you? Are you truly trying to serve him and expand his garden? 
Or have you just walked that and said that and other things are over here? And don't disregard that either. Because there's a, every, there's a whole spectrum. And I'm not just trying to say you're totally on fire or you're not. But we're all somewhere in between. And it depends on what area of our life we looked at too. Some of us, Yahweh is king in this area of our life. Other areas, we're sacrificing lots of things to our own desires in the name of Yahweh. And the only way you can know is, search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me and know my anxious thoughts, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. That's the only way. I can't say that. As a friend who's involved in your life and loves you and knows you well, I can come along your side and say something like that. But even then, only God can ultimately convict you and ultimately point you. Learn the lesson of the judges. We are in chapter 12, verse 1. And even though the enemy has been conquered, there's also the cleanup. Notice that there's usually battles and then cleanups. And this time the Ephraimites cause a problem again. They like to not show up until the very end and try to claim spoils. Where Gideon at least tried to flatter the Ephraimites to deal with their pride and their apathy, Jephthah is going to have a different strategy. The Ephraimites assembled and crossed over to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you go and fight with the Ammonites without asking us to go with you? And once again, my response would be, I blew the trumpet. <laughs> and I called everybody. You didn't show up. We will burn your house down right over you. You didn't call us to battle, and so we're going to burn you down alive. The irony here is, it doesn't really matter what they do to Jephthah's house. He already burned it down. And they don't even realize that. That's, that's the horrible, sickening, sad irony of all this, is he's already burned his house down, and there is no lineage. He's killed his line, and they're threatening to wipe out his line, and he's already done it. And not only that, they're acting like Gideon where the response is, if you don't do what we like, we'll just go kill you in a torturous, evil way. And so this is what Israel has become. It's basically, we'll torture you if you do something we don't like, which means they're acting more like the people around them. And this is one of the reasons for God's Talion laws. The Talion laws were an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, a nail for nail. And remember, we talked about this back in um, the law. The point was not that you literally could go pluck their eye out if they plucked your eye out. The point was poetic justice, meaning that if they committed a crime, the punishment must fit the crime and stop. Because in these Arabic Middle Eastern cultures, if you kill my brother, I'm going to wipe out your family. And that's the way they, they do things. And so we saw that with um, Levi and Simeon when they raped Dinah in Genesis 34 they responded by slaughtering the entire Shechemite village. And you're going to see this again in the book of Samuel a couple of times. What we have is we have God giving a law restricting justice so that it actually is just. And Israel, as they're forgetting who God is and they're becoming devoid of his character, they're reverting back to the pagan ways of justice. And this is a big thing the Bible really hits on hard is that one of the ways that you truly demonstrate that Yahweh is your God is by the fact that your justice reflects his justice. Abraham tells us in a story, will not the God of all the universe, the judge, do what is right? 
And when we get to the prophets, the prophets are going to go after Israel for two major sins, idolatry and social injustice. And those are the two things that are going to hit harder than anything else. And so God makes it very clear the best way to really determine whether somebody is truly following God is our sense of justice. And I don't mean that on just a political front, but it is even just the way we deal with family members and our loved ones and, and people at work and that kind of stuff. How do we deal with them? And this is why he says, you will know me, they will know you by the way that you treat each other. And it's that sense of justice. They're falling away from that. He responds, My people and I were entangled in controversy with the Ammonites, and I asked for your help, but you did not deliver me from their power. So unlike Gideon, he doesn't flatter him. He just straight up says, you didn't help me. When I saw that you were not going to help, I risked my life and advanced against the Ammonites. And Yahweh handed them over to me. Why have you come up to fight with me today? Jephthah assembled all the men of Gilead and they fought with Ephraim. So now we are in a civil war. Now we have gone from just a corrupt leader like Gideon oppressing his people. Now we're going to full blown out tribal civil war. And we're fighting against each other because somebody said they weren't called to battle and the other person's angry they didn't come to battle. Jephthah assembled all the men of Gilead and they fought Ephraim. The men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because the Ephraimites insulted them, saying, You Gileads are refugees in Ephraim, living within Ephraim and Manasseh's territory. So they're fighting a civil war because they were insulted. The Gileads captured the fords of the Jordan River opposite of Ephraim. And whenever an Ephraim fugitive said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? And they said, no. So they captured the fords and the Ephraimites want to get back into their territory. But in order to get back to the territory, they had to cross through Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and cross the Jordan River. But Jephthah has captured the Jordan River crossings. So they had to go through a border check of Gilead's try. But rather than just saying, hey, you're a refugee, we won the war, you can just go back home, the war's over with, re re return your prisoners of war, they decide they're not done with that. We're going to go full-blown extermination. They ask him, are you an Ephraimite? Of course he's going to say, no, I'm not an Ephraimite. But they have a test for that. They said to him, say Shibboleth. And if he said Shibboleth, and they could not pronounce the word correctly, they grabbed him and executed him right there on the fords of the Jordan. On that day, 42,000 Ephraimites fell dead. So that's how they determined it. That's a lot of people. 42,000, and even if thousands should be understood as regiments, 42 regiments of soldiers is still a lot. And they're basing it. This is like saying, hey, are you from Texas? And they're saying, no. And you say, then say all of you. And they're like, y'all. And they're like, oh, you're from Texas. <laughs> this is what they're doing. This is what they're doing. They're finding that ethnic thing that they can't say well, which shows that this is total prejudice. This has nothing to do with justice. This doesn't even have anything to do with being offended anymore either. This has just to do with the Hatfields and the McCoys, that we've got this dispute going on. We don't really have good reasons for the dispute, but we're going to keep it going because that's what we do. And the civil war digresses into this. And so Jephthah led Israel for six years, and then he died and was buried in the city of Gilead. Now notice that it says that Jephthah led them, but for the first time ever, something's missing. The land did not have peace. Because even though technically Gideon 
didn't give them spiritual peace. He did give them political peace, militarily peace. Jephthah's not even doing that because he's defeated the enemies, but now they're in a civil war with each other. Jephthah is a horrible judge. He's a horrible judge who makes deals with God, sacrifices his daughter, decides to go to a civil war with his fellow tribes people or for, with another tribe for just being offended, insulted, and just does a mass extermination of people. Now, they're not completely exterminated, but that was his attempt. That was his attempt. So he led Israel for six years. Now, notice that his leading Israel is way less than previous judges, too. Six years, that's not very long. And he died and he was buried in Gilead. This is the end of Jephthah's story. Jephthah is a pagan who tries to make deals with God in order to give him his obedience. He's basically a pagan who tries to make deals with God in order to give him his allegiance. So the Jephthah cycle wraps up with a few final minor judges. Chapter 12, verse 8. After him was Ibzan of Bethlehem. He led Israel. He had 30 sons. He arranged for 30 of his daughters to be married outside the extended family. And he arranged for 30 young women to be brought from outside the wives for his sons. Ibznah led Israel for seven years, and then he died, and he was buried in Bethlehem. Now, this one makes it very clear that his marrying of his daughters and bringing people in sounds more like a financial or a treaty exchange. I mean, if you've got 30 kids, that's Remember, we talked about this. Multiple wives means you're acting like a king. So they're living in the footsteps of Gideon. Gideon changed the entire way that they thought of it. Remember, we talked about this is judges were supposed to be called by God. They were supposed to be anointed by God. But now we're, going to, we're acting like all the other nations. We're now our leaders are being chosen by biological descendancy. And that's not all what God. You do not pick leaders through biology. You pick leaders through God's calling, God's anointing. Verse 11. After him, after him was Elon, the Zebulonite. He led Israel for 10 years, and then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Alijan of the land of Zebulon. After him was Abaddon, son of Hilah, the Perathonite. He led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He led Israel for eight years. Then Abnon, son of Hiliah, the Parathite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So this one specifically mentions that all of his sons, 70, are riding on donkeys. And that's total kingship. That's like saying all of his sons rode in Air Force One. I mean, it would scream kingship language to them. And so it's very clear that we have a Gideon lineage going on here. And this is not all what God wants. Not all what God wants. 